In this next episode, I interview Mark Bitts. I originally met Mark through a business networking organization called CEO. And uh, I made a mistake when I, at the time that I got to know Mark, that I have committed myself never to make again, which is I drew uh, Mark, who's a, who's a quiet, thoughtful, interesting conversationalist, I drew him on many topics without realizing that he'd written two or three books. And it was just by randomly Googling him, I believe, that I saw that he'd published some books, which I then went and read. And our conversation subsequently, like the one you're about to hear, have been informed by the books that he's written. I made a commitment to myself after that experience that I will never try to draw somebody into any more than... Uh, a light conversation that I might have with them at a cocktail party without having read what they've written first. And uh, I think it's a huge lesson because anybody who's written a book will know that it takes countless hours and really years of one's life to put a book together. And so there's a huge part of who we are that is squeezed into those words on the page. And of course, we're very happy to engage in light conversation with people. But but it's really kind of not respectful of an author's time to want to engage with them in anything more, in any kind of extended conversation without having read what they've written. It's just not an efficient way to go about learning from them. And when you've read what they've written, you have a kind of a head start on where their minds are and where one might might take the conversation. So, uh, Mark, I, I need to thank you if you're listening to this for having taught me this lesson. And actually, for the listener, there are now um, two or three people that I've told them that I'm not going to get in touch with them until I've read their books. And I think that that's absolutely correct and right. And once I've read their books, and perhaps even reviewed their books, I will then feel free to engage with them and the conversation will be far richer. In Mark's case, I think that he has a, a a very deep grasp, perhaps beyond that of many college professors, of what makes the United States the incredible place that it, it is. And he has a deep understanding of that DNA and has concerns about the ways in which that DNA is being frayed, perhaps being frayed to such a degree that the United States might not be able to boot itself or reboot itself into the next generation that... Uh, uh, the qualities that have made the United States what it is today or what it became uh, from the American Republic and the extraordinary success that it's achieved as a country and the exceptional success. And I, I am one of those people who thinks of America as an exceptional place. It's not ordinary. Um, but he's concerned about where that's going. And I think that that grasp is something that when, once you've heard Mark talk and perhaps you've read some of his books you'll have a better grasp and maybe we have a better chance of preserving and um, building on what makes America great. And with that long and rambling introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Bitts. So Mark, it's it's such a pleasure to have you here with me. I wanted to start with, uh, I feel, I, I, when I first met you, I didn't know that you were an author and it came as a surprise to me. You're a modest person, so I had to find out on my own that you were an author and before we get into your book, Winning Practices, and the ideas behind it, can you, can you give us and me an opportunity to understand 
what it was that brought you to write the book and, and what makes you somebody who wrote a book out of the many millions of people who don't write books? <laughs> well, it's funny. It goes back to a moment I can remember so vivid, vividly when I was 19, um, and, uh, participating in a Big Ten University agricultural field study in Guatemala, Costa Rica, Honduras, and Colombia. And we were in the back um, parts as far out as you could get on the Llanos in um, Colombia. And um, after hearing a little bit about some of the agricultural research going on in the area, one of the gentlemen who spoke um, uh, agreed to take us back to his home. And um, when, when we went back to it, I was flabbergasted. It was a little hot. He had seven children and a wife and they slept on mats on a, on a dirt um, floor. Couldn't comprehend it. And from that moment on, I, it lit a fire in me. And um, I, I eventually got to see at age um, 19 and 20, 26 countries um, in Latin America, South America, Europe, um, Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union and Scandinavia. And after I saw all those um, different um, qualities of life and lifestyles. I, I wanted to understand why they were different and why they all couldn't be as um, extraordinary as the one I experienced growing up. Yeah, and that is the question. And it reminds me of the question that Jared Diamond wrote in Guns, German Steel, where he asked the question, which is effectively the question that you asked, which is, uh, you know, why was it that the Europeans came over to the Americas? Was it, why wasn't it the other way around? And he has some extraordinary answers that go to the kinds of animals and the kinds of plants that evolved in the different places and the way the continents are aligned north-south in, um, in the Americas and east-west. So, so what inspired me or what I found inspiring about reading your book is how you've identified that the Western civilization, I guess is what I would call it, has developed this um, a, a cultural operating system that has allowed us to diverge away from our instinctual and our um, genetic roots. And it seems like you've you kind of got there on your own. I had to get there by Jared Diamond and various other people. But um, before we move on to that, and I feel like the listener has to get some sense of Mark's ideas, which I want you to know are wide-ranging and are the subject of a course as well as a book, and we'll never cover them all in our one hour or so that we'll have together, so this will just give you a taste. But I hope that that question allows you to kind of give a sense of where we're going. Uh, so what is it about the Western cultural operating system that has enabled us to diverge from our genetic roots? I guess, is that set it up right so, for you? So one, one of the things where Jared Diamond and I diverged slightly is he attributed so much of the rise of different um, populations to the physical environment uh, that, that they were in and the um, circumstances that just happened, they happened to stumble on. And to me, it's a lot more uh, has, has to do with the cultural packages that the populations evolved. And actually, I think the truth lies, it's both. There's an interplay between the environment and the cultural packages that groups evolve. 
And when you think about it, um, culture is human software. It's a um, 2.4 million year accumulation of very various practices that allow people to flourish in, in an area. It's interesting to me, I learned that ants are the most dominant invertebrates uh, in, in, on the planet. And ants' success is their um, delusion into 10,000 different species and their genetic adaptation to all the different microclimates uh, on the planet. Human success is our divergence into one species and our development of hundreds, if not even a few thousand different cultural pack packages. And humans are, are unique in that we will pass and accumulate knowledge and understanding of how to negotiate our environment from generation to generation. And that's what um, set us apart from, from all other species. And, and so it's this development of cultural packages of human software that makes all the difference. And one of the things that's so frustrating to me is in the academic community, at least in the US and I think in the West, there's this idea that all cultures are equal. Um, they're different. Um, no one is superior to the other, and, and that's the way they view it. I, I don't believe that at all. From my traveling and um, life experience, I think some people, some groups, some populations evolve a superior set of software that enables them to really flourish in their environment. Yeah, I, I, and, and um, I, you know, one of these days, the academics will have to acknowledge it, or maybe they'll just too grow too old, or a new generation of people will acknowledge it. And um, there's so many places I want to go with this. I want to ask eight questions as a follow-up, and I want I'll, to dive I'll, in. I'll throw, I want to throw something back to help people understand this. It's so yeah. obvious in the extreme. If you think about being born in North Korea or Haiti versus being born in Switzerland or New Zealand, many times the difference and the advantages that you will have from the cultural package that you will have from the environment and people that surround you. Yeah, and uh, the cultural package is not... Well, I, I would just tell the listener that um, you have put together, you've pulled together a description of that cultural package in a way that is really, really wonderful because it pulls together not just politics, although there's politics in there, there's also personal values. There's 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 ways to, to approach family. There's ways to approach your own life. There's way how you organize as a group. The understanding of uh, this idea of fitness. Uh, so there are many. You pull many ideas from many disciplines together, which is really really special. And I guess I'm just going to give that as an advertisement to the reader before I dive into questions on specific topics. So, so there's kind of just a little bit about Mark's ideas. Can, yeah, can go I ahead. Can expand upon what you just said a little bit? I, I would love you to expand, Mark. Go ahead. So, so one of the things I realized, you know, you always hear in our country, well, it's, it's all the family. Well, it's all the community. Well, it's a lot more than that. <clears throat> so I look at seven levels of human organization. One is the individual. One is the family. One is groups. One is uh, education, one is enterprise, one is government, and one is culture itself. 
And, and the thing I realized is that there's what I call winning practices for each of these levels. And for a individual and a population really to do well, I've identified about 280 the things that they have to get right, the bare essentials. And these 280, what I call winning practices, spread across these seven areas. There's, there's one spe specific to individuals, one specific to groups, one specific to education. And, and for a population, uh, for most of the people to really flourish, you have to get the, these essential winning practices in place at all these seven different levels of human organization. Yeah, and, they, and that's in a certain way, it comes down to morality. And, uh, and, and, but, and, and well, again, it's, maybe we should dive into a few of those winning practices. I mean, we have, for example, and I'm just glancing at some of the very fine notes that you sent me. I mean, I know, for example, at the government level, this would be keeping the, the government finances in order, for example. But on a, on a personal level, it means minimizing the transmission of sexually transmitted and other diseases. So it, it, it hits, and, and I, I, I mean, they're obvious, I guess. Do you want to expand on any one of those two or any of the others that are there? Well, the one on sexually transmitted diseases. Um, so our liberal culture says um, all that um, is a private matter and um, what what happens happens well i would argue that it's much much bigger than that so sexually transmitted diseases are uh, underlying agents um, uh, that trigger a lot of infertility and a lot of cancers they're precursors to cancers and and i also have a winning practice called dna fidelity and that's the idea where we have to really think about uh, how we take care of our DNA because it transfers over generations. So our DNA is precious and everybody, every generation, um, our eggs and sperms have a few mutations and they're actually what creates changes that allows um, uh, species and, and um, uh, multiple species to evolve over time. But if there's too many mutations, um, sometime in our life, our cells will go cancerous. So a lot of the STD viruses and other viruses actually change some of our DNA. And, and the, this has an effect on our children. And another aspect of it is when we have children, when we're um, older, I would say um, post mid thirties, our eggs and sperms have a lot more mutations. And when you think about a human body, it starts out as one cell, and then it becomes about, um, depending on what cells you count, um, two to six trillion cells. And it becomes all these cells through division. So if there's a few mutations at the very start, there's um, more mutations that develop after so many um, divisions. As a, as a young person's body um, grows and develops, if they start, uh, if they're conceived with a very old egg and sperm, their cells are gonna be full of a lot more mutations than um, if, if they come from young eggs and young sperm. And this will set up them and their children for future problems that nobody can see that are completely invisible. So 
to me, um, STDs, which over half of the U.S. adults have had or, or currently have, and um, exposing our, our um, DNA to radiation and various chemicals and um, not protecting it from various viruses is a big, big multi-generational deal that needs to be discussed and debated uh, in, in, in the um, normal discourse of um, how we live our lives and the policies we set. And for what it's worth, I mean, I, I think we must, be, in every society that I know of, we're far away from discussing the protection of our genetic heritage, if you like, and how do we, and, and it's interesting because again, uh, if I were to even, if you or I were to bring that up in the wrong environment, um, we would expose ourselves to p the possible accusation of being eugenicists and somehow. No, no I, I, I don't think we, we risk that. I think, I think where I see the suppression is um, as the women's movement has caused uh, women to be more independent and to establish their careers before they have children and the husbands are right there with them on this. Um, this is a lot of the reason this is being suppressed. But um, I tell you, um, the West has um, focused way, way too much on the individual. And it's, for, it's forgetting, at least in the United States, the balance uh, that we have to have with the family and the community. Humans are, have a tri-nature, and there's requisites from all three that have to balance. And we're actually happiest uh, when we do, but um, we have to um, focus a lot less on ourselves and us as individuals and think a lot more about the generations, the family, and the community than at least we currently are in the United States. So uh, I'm not sure if you're, you're aware of you probably are of an author called Margaret Atwood, who was very uh, had a, a very successful book called *The Handmaiden's Tale*, and it paints a dystopian picture of a world in which uh, women are just there to breed, if you like. They're there to breed the species. They're kind of um, they're captives of the system, and only there to have babies, basically, and are kind of imprisoned. They're kind of slaves to have babies, and how, if somebody were to come and say, well, what are you suggesting? You're suggesting that we take young women and just have them, have them be um, baby, baby factories, uh, and do they not deserve to have a life and, and a career and what have you? Absolutely, I'm not suggesting that at all. And women were given a very difficult um, hand to play and deal when they had three options. They could be nurses, teachers, or... Um, mothers right and and that's a horrible situation i wouldn't wish that on anybody i have three granddaughters um no everything needs to be freely chosen it, the only thing i would i would offer is that i don't know how many couples i run into in their mid-40s that um decided to wait to have children and then when they started to try to have children they couldn't have children and as they get in their uh, mid-40s and 50s and don't have children and see their nieces and nephews and other children and realize that children and grandchildren are such an amazing part of the human life cycle and particularly important as we age, they realize that what they thought they understood and in in some of the choices they made when they're younger 
maybe were choices good for two, three, five, seven years, but not uh, maybe not the choices that would bring them maximize the happiness over their entire life cycle. So all, all I would suggest is we open this up for discussion on the table and we help um, young um, men and women understand that the life cycle, human life cycle is amazing. And um, what you want when you're uh, 40 and 50 and 60 is very different than what you might want in your um, 20s and 30s. And there's prerequisites to happiness later in life um, by some of the choices you make earlier in life. And I think that what part of what makes um, your ideas um, so refreshing to me and, uh, and, and so they ought not to be refreshing is that there are, there are kind of these, I, may I be so bold as to say lives, bills of goods that are sold to, for example, young women. And I have met my own fair share of women in their late 30s and mid 40s who are becoming embittered because they were sold this idea that they can have it all. And at a later stage, when it's too late to have children, they realize that they can't have it all. And would it not be fairer to them in society if we were to sell them a more realistic picture of, of the very real constraints that exist that are a result of biology? My, my wife had our third child when she was, I, I believe, 27 or so. And we, she, we'd had two children by then, or maybe she was 28. And already then, our third child, the risk of having Down syndrome was increased by a factor of 10,000. It was still very low. But it was high enough that they had to adver advertise those risks to us. And that was at age 28. So uh, should we not? Would it, I mean, I think that you would agree that it would be a far healthier world in which we, we honestly grapple with the challenges of being female and wanting to have children while at the same time having an interesting life. And it, it is very hard because you can't wait till you're 40. So, so the only thing um, I would say is I wouldn't lay it so much on um, women. Um, I, I see young men making the same choices, um, not wanting the, their wives and, um, and significant others to have children until um, they're older. So I would say, um, you know, it, it's, it's universal. And, and, and one thing I, I want to um, point out uh, that I think that's very important so 99% of our evolutionary history from about 2.4 million years ago to 10,000 years ago when agriculture started, uh, humans um, flourished on the savannas of Africa. And we lived in communities of about 150 people. And these communities were relatively egalitarian and um, uh, the extended family was intact. And what I've discovered, and there's actually a professor at Harvard that talks a lot about this, is humans are happiest when they can, as much as possible, mimic um, uh, life in a, in a smaller community of people. It can be in a big city, but it, it has to be a, a sub-community. Uh, and they follow the normal human life cycle. Um, what, what I find is as we've gotten so technically technologically sophisticated and moved further and further away from nature, we've, we've gotten sillier and sillier. And we've, we've um, put ourselves in, in a path 
and in environments that that over their life cycle make us um, bring a lot less happiness to us. So one of my one of my guides for everything I've done is nature. I study it closely and and its lessons. And there's uh, so many wonderful lessons in it. But one of them is if we can mimic um, the the time we spent 99% of our evolutionary history and our instincts were developing, uh, we're we're so much happier. Thank you. Thank you for those ideas. I want to dive into the world of international affairs. Uh, and um, if, if you have the view, if, if you share the view with me that, that some countries uh, have developed the cultural software to make everybody happier and better off, uh, what obligation do we have to, to find a way to enter into sovereign states and try and change the status quo. So I think that you and I can look around the world and see countries that where people are living pretty miserable lives. I mean, we might, we might talk about Haiti, which is just close to the United States. And we have this kind of, and again, I'm not a student of international affairs, but I understand that the treaty that was signed in Westphalia established this idea of non-interference in other sovereign states' affairs. And in that case, it was ending war of religion in Europe, and it was the states agreeing that each state could have decide its own religion and they wouldn't be interfered with from outside. But at what point do, do we in the West say we have a moral obligation to interfere? And we know that it's the case when war crimes take place. I think there's a reasonably well-established idea that we can do it then. Uh, and it's pretty well established that um, we probably, as the West, should not have gone into Iraq on the suspicion of uh, weapons of mass destruction. But how about the misery we see around the world? What's our moral obligation? So, so um, I, I was against going into Iraq, and I actually sent President Bush uh, um, a letter, reasons why, and why he might do something else. And he responded back to me. Um, and I won't, I won't talk about the response. But um, having lived through the last, um, uh, what's gone on since Vietnam and being a US citizen, I am really uh, opposed to uh, interfering with other countries. Um, and I think the US did a wonderful thing to, um, in World War II to stop um, authoritarianism and uh, then help nations rebuild. But ever since, I, I don't think we've been so prudent about it. Cultural change needs to come from the bottom up, not the top down from governments. And it needs to come from education in my mind. And what my book and my course is all about is making people aware of the essential practices that have to flow through the population. And my approach is that we first um, learn them ourselves and master them, and then we expand them within our circle of influence. I um, understand that the Cold War and the competition between um, democratic um, capitalism and communism and the need to contain um, its growth. And I understand now that um, Human, humanity is really locked in a struggle between three types of um, way to govern people. 
One is a theocracy that um, radiates from much of Islam. One is a um, rule of a, a junta or aristocracy or communist party uh, or um, uh, dictator and oligarchs like we see in the Soviet Union and China. And then the other one is the um, Western uh, bottoms up constitutional consent of the people democracy. Now, um, truly, uh, humanity is locked in a struggle between these three types of, of, of governance. And I, uh, of course, side with the one I grew up with and cherish. And I think it brings the freest, happiest, highest standard of living when it's done right. But it's also the hardest one. Um, the, the system in China is kind of much more aligned with human instinct. And, and our system is much more a product of cultural conventions that have evolved over time. And so it's really, really hard. And you just, you just don't start a democracy in another country. Um, it, it's the product of probably close to my 280 winning practices that I've identified. And these have to be learned by a, a large percent of the population. And they're only learned as the schools and parents uh, understand them and, and enculturate um, the children with them. So um, the system that Switzerland has and the United States has is very, very hard to transplant. It's transplanted well where com the Confucius culture has been, where um, the Protestant culture has been, where the um, Judaism has been. But in the Islamic world, it doesn't transfer well at all. It hasn't transferred well in Africa. And it's, it's because there's a, a um, underlying lack of a whole series of these critical practices that aren't prevalent in the population. So um, one of the things I learned in economic development, studying it for years, was most of the projects fell on their face and failed. And it's very, very hard to bring a population from um, third world to first world. Um, the master of it I learned a lot from was Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. And of course, China has modeled a lot of what he did. But it's a very hard thing. And it's not something that you just go in and governments impose from the top down. Um, I truly believe that people have to understand a lot of what's in my course and book. And then uh, they have to want to uh, enculturate those around them and spread it um, through education and the bottom up. Yeah. And um, I, I, many thoughts that are brought up. I want you to know, as the listeners will know, I, I live in Switzerland. I moved to Switzerland from the United States. I think that many of the reasons why I moved are um, reasons that uh, I subsequently discovered was that Switzerland embodied uh, the, uh, the sort of winning practices perhaps at the time better than the United States. I'm not saying that that's uh, for all time. But I would tell you, Mark, that I think that my, my ability to um, engage in winning practices has been improved. So I as a person have been improved through being here. And I could describe, I was describing to a friend yesterday how um, I, I was not all that good at keeping the speed limits here. It's a very simple idea. I mean, they, they, they really do expect you to keep, we, I can say, because I'm now a Swiss citizen, 
really expect our inhabitants to keep the speed limits. And there are kind of very powerful ways in which we train even people who've come here from elsewhere and didn't learn to drive here to abide by the traffic rules. And very briefly, Mark, I'll, I'll ask you a question. What do you think, and forgive me if I've already asked it of you before, I've not asked it on this podcast, um, what is the highest speeding fine that has been paid in Switzerland? Um, I don't know, $1,000? So it, you'll really enjoy this. The highest speeding fine paid in Switzerland was 180,000 Swiss francs, so around wow. $180,000, and it was somebody who was driving their uh, Ferrari or similar in a 20 kilometer per hour zone where you expected to drive about 10 miles per hour uh, in such a way that pedestrians are safe without looking around. This was somebody who didn't understand the traffic rules, obviously. And the police in this village impounded they, their car and they had the right to find the person up to half the value of the car and they find the person half the value of the car in my case after i got three speeding tickets i was assigned a parole officer effectively a police officer who called me up knew my name gave me his name and basically shared with me in the most polite and kind way possible that um, if i needed to come and study the traffic rules that would not be a problem and if he wanted me to if he wanted if i wanted him to come over and explain the traffic rules that would also not be a problem and that uh, he suggested that uh, I sort of make myself familiar with the speed limits because uh, another couple of speeding tickets and he might have to come take away my license for a few months until he was sure that I understood the rules. So they have a way of helping you to comply. It was, it was a really fun uh, lesson in the ways in which a, uh, you can set up the rules in such a way as to teach the population winning practices. And I, I want to get later to to the question of what is going on in the united states and how we're going to solve it but before i get there i just want to address one thing that actually is is perhaps a as for me a, a positive thing i was in dubai recently and i actually have come to the conclusion that there are people who've grown up in the islamic world but who are extraordinarily smart who've studied the winning practices of countries like singapore and the united states and, and I, I expected not, I was there for a conference, I expected not to be particularly happy or enjoy myself there, I was just there to do the conference. I actually found myself really respecting what was happening there, and I think that there is a new, there, 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 there is an enlightenment that is happening in the Islamic world that we should support and um, uh, um, uh, nurture. And I, I don't know if you want to address that at all, I don't know if you've been to Dubai recently. Sure. Or, so I'd, I'd like to address the rule of law and then bring me back to the Islamic world. Um, so more important than democracy is an honest rule of law. Um, and I talk about this in my book. It needs to be constitutional. It needs to be legislatively and collegially oriented. It needs to be impartial and widely supported. It needs to be easily understood. It needs to be consistently enforced and justly applied needs to be periodically reviewed, and it uh, needs to be completely judicious now in its application. Now, <clears throat> Singapore got this right. Switzerland has this right. Um, the U US had it right until about the 1970s or 80s. Um, the, uh, Dubai has this right. Where you get an honest rule of law 
an enlightened rule of law, a consistent rule of law, you create an environment which people can be free and flourish. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's definitely the case. The rules matter where our freedom ends, where others begin. And, and when there isn't a, uh, uh, an enlightened rule of law and consistent rule of law, um, people walk all over each other and take advantage of each other. People uh, have a predatory nature, a very self-centered nature. And it's the rule of law that gives us the opportunity to live freely and prosper. And it's ever so important. And one of the things that breaks my heart more than anything is we are losing our um, impartial and consistent uh, rule of law in the United States. And it's very, very troubling to me. But anyway, now to the question on the Islamic world is you can't paint all the Islamic countries with a broad brush. And I don't mean to do it if I did. There's um, some amazing high quality of life in, in some of the Islamic countries. The ones um, that uh, concern me are the Iran types where you have a theocracy and you have a group that's intent on imposing um, from the top on ideology and way of life and um, uh, arbitrarily um, changes the rules and um, enforces them. And for me, that, that's not, not good. Um, and there's certainly many, many other examples of Islamic countries that are doing much better than the United States as far as um, giving uh, their citizens a high quality of life. Yeah, I, and it, it took some time for me to, to, to understand that and see that. And I was really so positively encouraged by, by the example of Dubai, which is, um, I reluctantly say this because the first time I went, I, I, I was quite disparaging. Um, and I don't particularly like the architecture, but it's a special place. I wanted to ask you about the role of religion in transmitting culture, because if you take the Judeo-Christian religions, um, in one way or another, e either through migration or through imperialism, uh, th there have some been some books written that that actually this was a very effective transmitter of culture to people outside of the roots of Christianity and Judaism, and it seems like that's no longer an option, if you like. And I just wanted you to address it. One of the things I write about in my book, and uh, that's that's so troubling and it could ultimately um, be the, the backdrop of the demise of the West or certainly uh, its loss of its, its exceptional nature, uh, is that science uh, inadvertently discredited a lot of what religions were teaching and particularly um, uh, strains of Christianity. And what happened in Europe, uh, it happened much faster than in the US people participating in weekly services, whether it's synagogues or churches, um, declined to, I think, less than 10%. Well, in the US up until, I would say, 1990 even, it was closer to 50 or 60% that attended weekly services. And in the US, um, uh, the faith communities were tremendous transmitters of winning practices. 
Now, I would I would suggest not all their their practices were winning, but there were a, a very large um, portion of them were. So as the U.S. has um, become more like Europe, this mechanism to transfer winning practices has dissolved. And one of the things I, I, I talk about is how people used to try so hard to be good and kind to one another and considerate in our country. And now I see honking horns and rudeness like I never saw when I was younger. And I think a lot of this is just the loss of influence of faith communities on our culture. So I've thought long and hard about this and I'm not wanting to roll the clock back to, um, to revitalize, revitalize religions that didn't evolve and keep up with science and the evolution, understanding of, of evolution in the universe. Um, I'm actually proposing now that the US create a cultural council and this council be comprised of a hundred thoughtful sage individuals that are appointed by our 50 governors. They serve eight year terms and they, um, uh, he, they, the governors appoint 50 every four years. So there's an off rotating set. And this council would have no um, real power except the power of the respect the individuals on it commanded and the council, the collective council um, uh, had. It would comment on culture and things that were going on when two thirds of the council agreed on something. So I think the council, um, by its very nature, the way I've, I've um, thought of it, would reflect the values of the underlying population and the ethnicity and, and racial composition of it. And when you get two thirds of thoughtful people to agree on something, it's usually pretty significant. And, and I think they could help us with a lot of these issues that we can't um, resolve politically. One, one of the problems that, that's happened in the United States and it hasn't happened in um, Switzerland is our government was so powerful and so consequential in the world that everybody has an interest in who wins and, and, and gaining political favors from it. China has poured billions of dollars into affecting our institutions and our political races uh, indirectly. And also um, various uh, groups that may be um, wanting to advance um, uh, socialism and Marxism and so on and so forth. And then there's groups from the right as well. And in the last election cycle, there was close to $50 billion spent in influencing who was elected. And uh, more than half of it didn't come from small donations from our population. They came from large players. So we have a situation in the US now where we're no longer truly a representative democracy of the people, but we're actually, our, our policies are being purchased by um, billions of dollars of donations um, uh, from individuals. And so our government isn't able to solve a lot of these problems and it's become so consequential. It's over 30, federal government is over 30% of our GMP, whereas it was under 10% for the first 150 years of our history. So when you concentrate such power, it corrupts. And when you have money influencing it to such an extent and buying outcomes 
<clears throat> no longer represents the people. I'm hoping and the Cultural Council could wake people up and uh, since people wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't be elected, they couldn't be um, uh, purchased to such an extent that it might help um, guide our culture and help us transmit these, um, identify these winning practices and transmit them across generations where um, they're no, we're no longer getting that transmission from faith communities uh, or, or to a much um, smaller degree and we're unable to solve a lot of these problems um, politically. You know, just a, a little bit of personal autobiography. Um, when I moved to New York City, uh, I was in one way or another kind of untethered, uh, but I, and, and I found it extraordinarily helpful. I lived on the Upper West Side of New York and I participated in specifically the modern Orthodox Jewish, a few modern Orthodox Jewish communities. And um, then when I met my wife, we participated in, in what another strand of Judaism called conservative Judaism, which is less observant of, um, of many different rules that the Orthodox communities observe. But, but that actually was a cultural education for me, uh, one that I had not received at school or university. And um, a, a good family friend of ours grew up Catholic and was drawn to that a very, very austere version of Orthodox Judaism. And, and he, again, was kind of like felt untethered by our culture and want, wanted to tether himself down. The other thing that comes up for me when you describe this cultural council is if you reach back into periods of Jewish history, there was at one time the people were, were, were governed by what was called a Sanhedrin of, uh, I believe, 70 judges. And effectively, mm -hmm. the country was governed by judges rather than kings. There were other times in the history where they were, were governed by kings. Well, how do you answer? And I'm, I'm so sorry to pose it in this way because I'm sure you've heard it many times before. Um, Mark, it's a great idea. And if we could just make, wave a magic wand and put it to an existence, that would be great. But um, how, how, what would be the practical steps to move from, from your idea to actually getting that as a reality? It's a far out idea when, pe when people hear it the first time. But when they actually have spent as much time understanding how cultures, human software, and how the prevalence of um, certain critical practices in a population determine its quality of life. And they recognize that we've got to identify these practices and we've got to um, teach them to our children. Um, they'll understand its significance and importance. I kind of envision a few very wealthy individuals taking the idea to some governors and they them funding um, it wouldn't need much money for this to operate the fun, they funding the startup of this and a few governor governors appointing uh, making some appointments now um, hopefully with time um, and the and the political um, diversity of the idea and and the way the council would be formed would catch and more and more governors would support it. It needs no act of um, the federal government or Congress, and it actually would operate outside um, our government. 
it, it would only be incumbent upon the governors to decide to um, come up with a nomination for the council. So I think it, I think it could really happen once uh, people are so frustrated and Americans are very frustrated with, with what's happening in our country, understood uh, how, how um, helpful it could be. So up until um, our founders started the American democracy, about every culture in the world, and, there, and there's been thousands of them, were uh, guided by elders. You have to live quite a while to have a perspective on life to really gain a sense of, of, of the human life cycle, what's important, and how to create a high quality of life over it. I, you know, one of the requirements to be on this council would people would have to have been accomplished sage individuals over 50 years of age. Now, again, um, I'm not giving, uh, I'm not suggesting we give a group like we have in Iran of uh, geriatric, geriatric reactionary seniors control of our country. All I'm suggesting is we create a group of um, sage individuals to thoughtfully consider our challenges and to comment on them. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think it's a very reasonable, doable approach, but it's going to take, um, again, a lot of education and understanding of why it's important and uh, how it might work. And it's going to take um, some proactive um, people with some means to, um, I think, get the ball rolling. I, I would tell you that I did. I was a law student for a couple of years as an undergraduate, and every now and then I, I find great interest in reading the judgments or, or observing the judgments of either Supreme Court of the United States or Supreme Court of Israel, or uh, now there's even a Supreme Court in the United Kingdom. And I think that what I find, you know, there's, there's a woman uh, in the United Kingdom called Lady Hale who issued a judgment on the prorogation of British Parliament and she's she's known by the endearing term of girly swat, and um, that 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 goes into sort of like the depths of British politics. But I I realize that judges at that very very high level have a, a very careful task because because they run the risk. At the end of the day, what a judge does is uh, writes an opinion, or they do it as a group, and that opinion and and the order which is basically just a letter with a stamp and a signature from a court uh, could be ignored and so I, I find it interesting for example um, you know the judgment of the Supreme Court on the challenge to the Affordable Care Act in the United States where they, they, I, I think that realistically even if every single justice of the Supreme Court had vehemently disagreed with what um, Congress had done, it, there was no way that the Supreme Court would get away with overruling Congress on that issue, and so they called it a tax rather than, I don't remember the exact legal issues. What's my point to you is that I actually do believe that an appropriately constituted council of elders issuing um, opinions on cultural matters of the day, if it is done in the right way, could elicit an enormous amount of tension and support and 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 it doesn't have the the force of law because because it's not making law but has moral force and authority in the same way that when the world health organization calls calls something that's taking place a pandemic 
then there are consequences that follow from that. And that's a, it is a really extraordinarily interesting idea. Obviously, the, the Council of Elders might not issue the opinions that you or I might like, and they might feel constrained by where the culture is in that day. They might not be able to go to the full extent that they want to go because they have to maintain the broad support of the people in there. But it is a fascinating idea and brings me back to some of the earliest uh, uh, churches in New England. Um, the Unitarian Universal Church is one of them. They, they were very unusual. And I can tell you that the structure of religious communities in the United States is very unusual because they are so democratic. And this mm -hmm. idea that in religious communities, the leaders were mainly elected. And that is, for example, not the experience of the average participant in the Church of England, where the, the head is the queen. And she picks her bishops, not based on popularity. And so in a certain sense, you're kind of looking for that cultural common ground that people will accept as their moral leadership in a certain way. It's really a fascinating idea. I, I want to uh, broach the idea of the two-thirds um, agreement. So um, we're having a um, debate in this country now whether the filibuster in the Senate should continue or not. But when you think about it, um, democracy is very divisive, uh, a simple democracy. When you have 50% of the population plus one agreeing on something and all the rest of the people disagreeing on it. So what you've got is a situation where half of the group is imposing its will on the other half unwillingly. And, and this is not something you want to have happen on a regular basis. We need... Um, simple majorities for some rather inconsequential things. But on things that really have consequence, we need super majorities. And we, it takes time longer for the policy to evolve and develop and garner that kind of support. But when it does, it's a much more powerful, less divisive policy. And um, this concept of using super majorities to um, uh, prove really consequential things, I think, is very, very important. Obviously, the, the debate over what requires a supermajority or not is itself a debate. I would tell you that I, I received Swiss citizenship earlier this year, no, earlier last year, forgive me, 2021. It was a wonderful experience for the first time in my life I've been able to vote in referenda that have come up. And I've only ref voted in two sets of referenda so far, and I was not a voter in the Brexit referendum in the UK that I think that I would like to propose should have been something that was put to a supermajority vote, but wasn't. But I would tell you that my experience of voting is that it's, again, you cannot underestimate. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm a guy who reads. I studied politics. I am politically aware. And, but still, I went through an education through some of my votes coming out where I was on the winning side, but some of my votes coming out when I was on the losing side, and actually a modification of my opinion in, in one, one of the votes on a national level, uh, the, the group making the initiative, making the proposal to the population wanted to change the way judges are selected. It turns out judges are selected kind of in a, in a, in a between the political parties. You have to be aligned with the political party. And I thought this was wrong and that there should be a, a way of selecting judges along with the people who are making this proposal 
which didn't rely on the political parties putting forward their candidates. I didn't think that a judge should have to be a member of a political party and be on a party list in order to become one of the highest judges of the land. It was voted down by a pretty significant majority. Uh, and and the, the, the response effectively of the Swiss population was what you're proposing is not practical and actually what we've got is works just fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, so... But the, the, I, I think that my point to you is that, um, uh, that running, running a democracy is extraordinarily subtle. And I think that the British Brexit referendum was one of the most extraordinarily unsubtle things that a developed democracy can do. What I learned in Switzerland is that the subtleties are even hard for me to understand having lived here for 10 years. I would tell you that a, a, a friend of mine who is a former politics tutor, Vernon Bogdanor, has opined on um, referenda in the state of California where there are all sorts of unusual results. And his response is that um, uh, it takes a lot. He believes that uh, Californian uh, political culture will mature to a point where the referenda don't result in sort of like perverse outcomes and that perhaps even in the United Kingdom if we had a few more referendums in the UK maybe that would evolve as well I, I want to make a jump it was something I wanted to ask you previously but I saw that you were I, I sort of like there's a there's a whole topic of decline in the United States that I think that is is addressed by your council that we should get into uh, and what to do about it other than the council and, and examples of how it's happening and why it's happening before I get there, I just want to ask you about China. Uh, and I want to paint a different picture of China and allow you to rebut it. And I'm, this is not a picture that I necessarily agree with, but I can't. I, 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 I would love to see if, if you do rebut it or if you agree to with it. So the, the, I, the, the picture of China is, is as follows. Yes, it's called the Chinese Communist Party, but actually the Chinese Communist Party has 60 million members, and there is vibrant and vehement debate about policy and choices from within the chi inside the Chinese Communist Party. And the deal in China is, if you want to do politics, join the Communist Party. Don't do politics outside of the Communist Party. So you want to pu publish a uh, incendiary paper that, that has um, unusual political positions if you want to do it outside that could rile up the population as considered disturbing of the order you're extremely welcome to do it inside the party and um, so then within the party unlike uh, say the United States where you have politicians who need to make promises that they can't keep in order to get elected and then they can be utterly incompetent in office until they finally get removed you have a, an extraordinarily meritocratic system where promises count for nothing within the Communist Party. Delivering results does count. And um, you can have a career where, as a, as a political manager of a city, of a region, of a town, based on your performance in that job, you might get promoted. So there's, there's meritocracy there. Uh, so the, the critics of the United States who have the Chinese perspective would say there is vehement political debate, but combined with order. Uh, you are free to express your opinions if you express them in the right way. And it is a political system that is uh, focused on practical results in terms of increasing standard of living and um, competent 
um, uh, administrators, whereas in the United States and other free democracies, we have the person who can make the biggest promises and make the population believe them. Um, and, and so the, the, the conclusion to that is actually China's not such a bad place after all. And yes, I was, I was indoctrinated in the political politics of liberal democracy, and therefore I'm deeply suspicious but uh, you know, somebody who's espousing that view would say, "Guy, you should be less suspicious. It's not as bad as you think. It actually might be quite good." How would you respond to that? So one of the things I've learned from uh, science and nature is that humans are superorganisms, meaning that we, um, yes, we compete as individuals and families and businesses, but we compete as um, nations, uh, as a huge population because we find uh, greater strength in large numbers, economies of scale and synergies. Now, if large nations didn't compete and we became one world government, um, the government would absolutely corrupt and there would be no innovation, no forward progress. Um, nation competition is a, actually a very um, evolutionary and very important thing. Um, the Soviets made Americans better. Americans made the Soviets better. China is making America better and America will make the Chinese better. So I am all for the competition. I think it's healthy and good and necessary. It's natural. It's part of evolution. Now, having said that, I'm much more um, prone to wanting my side to win the competition rather than the other side. Now, um, the competition uh, is ultimately um, fought and, and won, and there will be uh, one that will prevail. Like the US uh, and the West eventually prevailed over the Soviet Union. Now, the question before us is, is a single party system where there's solidarity among the population and uh, meritocracy at the top um, going to uh, win against a two-party system where there isn't solidarity and there's division. And more importantly, and what I'm worried about is um, China has control of its culture and its culture really, for the most part, is very healthy. The U.S. has no mechanism to control its culture, and it's actually, um, we've abdicated uh, it to Hollywood. And Hollywood is a for-profit business that uh, my wife and I can find very little now that's wholesome, inspiring, and uplifting to watch. It's dark. What Hollywood is putting out is full of prom promiscuity and violence and um, death and um, darkness. Um, so, so right now, I think the West, uh, particularly the US culture is very much adrift and China has full control over it and by and large doing a very, very good job. But I would say if you look at history um, and China has fallen into this um, and they have the longest history, there's periods where they were absolutely um, had their game together and on top of the world. And there's periods where they were at the bottom of the heap. Now, what happens is uh, when you get a single party system, an authoritarian system, 
when it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's bad. And the people have no mechanism to change it or protections from it walking all over them. And the protections we want in the West started um, probably with the Magna Carta actually before, maybe with Athens and Rome and the um, uh, start of a democracy in Florence. But these protections were hard won and um, I, I value them and I think they're huge and I wanna see them preserved. But the only way we're gonna preserve them is if we start to identify the practices that have to be prevalent in the population and start teaching them to our children. And all these mechanisms that gave us an extraordinary standard of living and quality of life that elevated our life from our, our instinctual operating system um, have to be in place and working. So um, uh, I admire what Lee Kuan Yew did and I love Singapore now, it's become democratic. Uh, I admire what China has done, the number of people it's lifted out of poverty and the quality of life it's given them. But I also am very weary about um, concentrations of power, monopolies and corruption. And it's nothing that I would trade what we have in the West for yet. Um, uh, and I'm going to work hard um, to help us get our act together um, so we can compete with China. And uh, we will have a bottom up um, representative of the people, um, highly functioning uh, government. I have to say that that's um, it, it is a it is a that idea that what is China has got is working for it right now, but might not work for it forever. And when it stops working, a newly prosperous China may have a very hard time switching it out for something that works better. And just to take Switzerland as a as a counterexample, the Swiss. There's this understanding that effectively the Swiss people, Swiss citizens are sovereign, and the Swiss constitution and the constitutional arrangements have been changed and rejigged multiple times. There is a mechanism for, for, the, for that refreshing to occur. I would tell you that in the United Kingdom right now, there's a, and, and I spend now a lot of time in the UK because my children are being educated there and my parents are there. Um, there is a widespread sense amongst many people that the system needs a fundamental reboot. And I think that one of the cases for democracy is that the system is capable of rebooting itself. But I have to say that I, I really worry that um, the institutions in the UK are not don't seem to be proving themselves to be capable of rebooting themselves. And... Um, I feel more concerned about the UK than the United States, perhaps because I spend more time there these days. But perhaps you're welcome to address my, my concerns about the UK. But I also want to give you the chance to point to, because I think that if, you know, the, the, boiling, the frog in the boiling water, the water slowly boils and the frog doesn't notice it. And I think that because you have set up this paradigm that is not uh, United States versus China or somewhere else. It's the United States versus the best version that it could possibly be. Uh, the practice, the winning practices of a fit and prosperous people, and that's and 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 you see an increasing divergence that is going the wrong direction in the United States. It's the idea of decline. We were once a great republic, and we're not anymore. Um, perhaps you can describe that for the audience. Uh, perhaps taking a detour via the UK if you want to. 
So, so you mentioned about the ability to reboot and um, the United States has been in trouble many times before and rebooted. I'm a, I'm a little more worried this time around because <clears throat> over the 20th century, there was a steady erosion uh, of the institutions that um, were specified in our constitutions and actually limited the uh, federal government and the concentration of power. And there's one particularly that nobody hardly in the world knows and even Americans know anymore. And it's really critical. So when our founders set up the United States, they set up a bicameral legislature, a house and a Senate. <clears throat> and the house was to reflect the popular opinion of the people. And the Senate was to reflect um, the uh, preferences of the state governments. And the way US senators were elected were they weren't elected by popular election. They were elected um, by the state legislatures. Each of the state legislatures chose two US senators. And for legislation to pass, it had to um, uh, be popular and it had to um, uh, be satisfactory to the states. And I can show you a graph of um, federal spending as a percent of GNP. And up until 1913, when the 17th Amendment was passed to the Constitution, federal spending was less than um, probably 8% as a percent of GNP. For 150 years, the line is flat. And then in 1913, we changed the way we elected the US senators. And we went from having the state legislatures choose them to popular, um, to a popular vote in the state. So federal spending from that point on goes up exponentially and it's never stopped going up. And as it's gone up, it's concentrated more and more power uh, in the federal government and it's spawned special interests. As the federal government does more and more with each thing it does, a special interest grows around um, that, that, that stream of funding it provides. So um, basically over the 20th century, we went from the Senate checking the growth of the federal government and its concentration of power to a Senate that just like the um, representatives in the house wants to play Santa Claus with the federal resources and credit. So now um, they've all discovered that they can win the elections by making promises to do more and more things for interest groups and people. And, and the power that our founders understood needed to be contained because federal governments don't have competition within the country and they aggregate more and more power over time, um, that has been destroyed and it, and on top of that, there's been several other erosions. For example, originally in our constitution, the United States had um, federal government had about 11 powers, 11 things it could do, nothing else, unless it was um, added to the constitution. Well, with the um, uh, threat to stack the courts with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt area and dealing with the Great Depression, uh, he was able to get the um, uh, Supreme Court to reinterpret the opening paragraph in the Constitution that says the government is to, to promote the general welfare. 
Well, that was a general statement and the federal government was only had these 11 specific powers. But with the reinterpretation of that clause, it opened the federal government up to be able to do anything and everything. And, and that's another example of a, a constitutional constraint that was broken. And, and I could go into a few more. So the, the, the government of the United States now uh, in its current form is very different than the form that it had, I would say up until the 1930s and this erosion happened the whole 20th century. So it's a very, very different government. And I'm not sure it's able to reboot anymore um, because of all the money that's buying the policies. Now, I will say one thing in our favor and I'm hopeful about is we have this history, which I'm unearthing and talking about in my course and other people will unearth and discover over time. And if we can um, always revert, uh, learn from our history and the start we had, um, we may be able to prevent ourselves from morphing into a um, very run-of-the-mill, huge uh, federal bureaucracy um, that no longer is responsible, responsive to the people. Yeah, and I'm totally with you, and I very much hope that we do find a way to do that. Um, this is not going to make you happy, uh, but in Switzerland, it was a great surprise to me to discover that um, the federal government here and its federal system does not have the right to levy income taxes on the population. The federal government, there are very few taxes that it can raise. Uh, one of them, for example, is excise on, on imports and exports, and there, there are two or three others that I forget right now. But income taxes are a negotiation between the federal government and the cantons, or equivalent to states. And um, the states decide, or the cantons decide, in a group against the federal government. And they are relatively far more powerful than the individual population. And so they keep the federal government under very, very tight controls. And that simple idea that the federal government does not have the power to levy income taxes and that is a, a power that is jealously guarded by the cantons, makes an enormous difference to the federal government's budget and the state budget, state's budgets. And I think that, well, I, I, let me ask you, um, uh, how far, well, another way of pointing out the ways in which American po political culture or American culture has been eroded is, to, is I was, I had not even visited the United States, so I was really inspired by reading de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which was one of my set readings at university, how far has the United States strayed from the country that was described by Tocqueville in his book? So, so there's lots of things that I'd like, I could mention, but one of the things I want to get on the table is um, in the United States now, um, the tweens, eight to 12 year olds, are spending six hours a day on social media. And the teenagers, um, 13 to 18, are spending nine hours a day. On top of that, they're watching three hours of television. Now, the world in which they're spending far more time than they're spending with adults and they're spending in school is one detached from reality. It's a completely contrived, made-up world. 
and this is um, a huge concern. And so much of our um, the practices that children are picking up now are coming from this alternative world. It's not quite the meta, meta universe yet, but we're working towards it. That isn't real. This is a, a huge concern, and we've got to figure out how to um, how to get get control of that. The other thought I wanted to bring up was. I, I mentioned earlier, we, we have these instincts that act on us 24 seven. And, and one of the ones is a more egalitarian society. And the challenge capitalism has always had <clears throat> is people are lazy and they'll preload if there aren't incentives for them to earn more money and um, put their money at risk and really profit. So to get um, people working hard and motivated to produce and elevate the quality of life, you need, you need income disparity. But for people to be happy and comfortable, you need some equity. So the question the West, one of the big questions the West has always been trying to figure out is how do we um, keep people motivated and, and um, actively um, working hard and doing the right things? And how do we, at the end of the day, have a sense of equity? Now, um, I would argue the practices of having all the money go to a federal government and being redistributed to even things up is a losing practice. Or, or at, at, at best, it's, a, um, it's not a best practice. It's an inferior one. And you mentioned that Switzerland keeps um, it's tax raising and power locally. And, and this is what has to be done because when you keep um, that locally, when, when the local governments misuse it, people have an opportunity to move somewhere else and vote with their feet. When it all goes to the central government and they're doing it um, and they screw it up, um, people don't have the opportunity to move and uh, apply pressure to the authorities to correct the mess. So that's just a, a couple ideas. Your comments triggered that I wanted to get. Yeah, no, and so um, I think that we. I want to end with your calls to action. So uh, obviously, so so an individual hearing this, and and I, I would tell uh, those of us, those of you who are listening, that please please go buy Mark's book and. You get the chance to do, do his course, do his course. And it really does surprise me that there are, there are some people with such extraordinarily good ideas that don't get the coverage that they deserve. But if you're feeling inspired the way I am, um, and you may, and, and Mark, the listeners may be anywhere in the world, what, what kind of, what, in, what calls to action would you, would you what, what comes to mind as things that one might do? And you know, there's a beautiful so, I idea in, the, in, in, in Jewish thought that every individual has to think of the world as, as kind of finely balanced between good and evil, and that the individual, in his or her own choices in that moment, could tip the world in one way or the other. And so, you know, we have a little bit of influence here. People listening to this may make different choices as a result of hearing this conversation. What are your calls to action? Okay, I'd like to leave your listeners with a summarizing message, and then I'll, I'll give you some, some, then some ideas of what they can do. So 
what I've learned from my journey and it's uh, a 47 year plus journey is we're born into a world with an instinctual operating system that's suited for living in small groups in primitive times. Life is not easy and we only flourish as our parents, teachers and peers help us make sense of the world and equip us with a more sophisticated operating system. And the quality of the supplemental software, the quality of our families, communities, schools, enterprises, and governments, and the degree to which we develop executive function, which we haven't talked about, but we could largely determine the trajectory of our lives. So what does the individual do? I would say, do all you can to identify what the essential practices are and the essential perspectives. Teach them to your children, teach them to your grandchildren, make sure they're very aware of them. And then as you can have impact on the education in your community, be it a faith community, public education, private education, um, help them become aware of the essential perspectives and practices and encourage them to teach them to their um, students. Um, if we do these things and try to impact um, the uh, people around us as much as possible and be the best at the things we do, um, I think that's doing an awful lot. Mark, that's an extraordinary set of calls to action. I deeply appreciate the time that you spent with me and the audience. And it, it, it only remains for me to ask you, on behalf of everyone who will be interested, if, um, if somebody listening to this wants to get in touch with you or engage with you, what is the best way to find you? Okay, um, they can me email me at mark at flourishbooks.org. Great. So, so if, you, if you heard that, mark at flourishbooks.org. You've got a direct line to Mark. And, and I just want to tell you, Mark, I, I, it was really inspiring for me. I met Mark at a, at a we, we're members of the same organization, and I met him at a conference. And I'm so pleased because I d developed, a, or it's not something that I've successfully done, but if I've met somebody and they've written a book, I try to read their book because I, I know what it feels like when somebody's met me and they haven't read my book. I don't mind, but I don't think it's our right to take too much of somebody's time on a one-on-one, -on -one, real-time basis if we haven't read what they've written because we're going to have a far more in-depth and knowledgeable conversation with them when one's read what they've written. And what was remarkable about Mark uh, in closing is that Mark is this very modest man who doesn't impose himself in real life and then uh, there's this extraordinary depth and there's some really careful thinking that's been going on, which I, I'm just glad because if I had not gone and found that bookmark, I may never have known what stands behind you. And I hope that this goes a little bit of a way to um, getting your ideas more broadly shared as they should be. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, you're, you're awesome. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank, thank you, you so much.